Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're recording late on Tuesday night after the Celtics just hammered the Hawks again to take a 2-0 series lead. 119-106 the final on Tuesday. And by the way, the Bees up in their series 1-0 after a 3-1 win on Monday night. The Bruins, they didn't have their A game clearly in that game one, but they still get it done. We're going to chat with Connor Ryan from the Globe and Boston.com about the Bees in just a little bit. Little Game one reaction and then looking forward to game two and the rest of the series. Quite frankly, I don't believe Florida has much of a chance in the series. I didn't believe it before game one, and I definitely don't believe it anymore. And we'll get into that with Connor Ryan in just a little bit. But before that, we start with the Celts taking care of business again. And look, there are a lot of things to get into with this one. Atlanta in, is embracing David's strategies, right? I mean, that, that's their whole thing. Underdog strategies and there was a lot with this Atlanta team, like they're better without Trey Young. We chatted with Bill about that the other day. So there's a lot of meat on the bone with this one, but let's just start with Derek White. This guy, we talked about it with Bill. He's been so good this season and he was so good in game one. He is just abusing Trey Young. Derek White had a great season for the Celtics. I said on multiple occasions, I thought he was the Celtics third best player. And what we've seen in the postseason so far is... He's been even better. He did it again tonight. He was better in game two than he was in game one. And look, I never thought that Atlanta had a chance in this series whatsoever. Remember, I was basically celebrating last week when we found out it was going to be Atlanta instead of Miami. But if they were going to have a chance to compete in this series, the Atlanta Hawks, Trey Young was going to have to go bonkers, right? He was going to have to like match Tatum in this series that was their only chance. Young had to be the best player in the series. That was their only chance to keep this thing competitive. That was never going to happen. And we clearly saw why. He was just in serious trouble the entire night. And the same thing goes for game one. And what's happened is this whole idea of, hey, can he match Tatum? Well, Derek White has completely outplayed him, right? White tonight goes for 26 points. He's 11 of 16 from the field. 
He goes for seven rebounds and three blocks. Meanwhile, Trey Young, he has 24 points. Great. So Derek White outscored him. Trey Young did it on 22 shots. He was nine of 22 and he had five turnovers. He was a minus 18. So before we get into some of the specifics with White and what he did in this game that made him so great is if you look at the numbers now in the series, Derek White, 18 of 29 from the field, 62.1%. Trey Young, 14 of 40, 35%. This guy was an all-star. This guy was an all-NBA performer, right? He's getting completely outplayed by Derek White. White from three-point territory in this series, 6 of 12, 50%. Trey Young, 3 of 13, 23.1%. Oh, yeah, Derek White has 50 points in the series, and Trey Young has 40. Oh, and by the way, as we mentioned, the plus-minus was bad again for Trey Young on Tuesday. He is now a minus 32 in the series. So the guy that's supposed to be the best player on the Hawks, they have been outscored by 32 points when he's been on the court. So if you look at the numbers between Derek White and Trey Young, we gave you the numbers in terms of the points, but he's up 27.1 percentage points in terms of the field goal percentage from Trey Young and 26.9% in terms of the three-point percentage. It's just completely a dominant performance by Derek White. And I really think that he's relished this. And I think this is going to be great for White going forward. And look, I told you before the playoffs started, I didn't think confidence was going to be an issue this year with Derek White. And this start to the postseason is like the best thing you could possibly get because he's dominating somebody on the defensive side of the floor and he has been downright outstanding on the offensive side of the floor. So the question now is (laughs) how Going forward, can Trey Young be effective at all? Because the Celtics' third best player has completely outplayed Trey Young by a wide, wide margin. Like, it's not even close just going through some of the numbers. And you just think about some of the plays that Derek White made in the game on Tuesday. He, first of all, he contests a bad three from Trey, and Trey took a bad three. Derek White gets in his face, so Trey Young's got an awful look at the basket. And then what does he do? Sprints down the floor, gets a hit ahead pass, easy layup, makes it 15 to 9 because Trey Young, he was forced into a bad shot by Derek White. That's a head to head matchup in the game. Then later on, he drives left, gets a nice little floater, makes it 19 11. He grabbed an offensive rebound and then he hit a crazy layup to make it 25 25. Remember that? It was off a free throw. This is the hustle stuff that Derek White does. He grabs that rebound, he comes back, he gets this like circus layup that he throws way off the backboard. It was unbelievable. Then he blocked Trey Young, right? At the end of the first quarter, he finds Brogdon and Brogdon hits a half court shot to make it 28 to 25. And the Celtics, who were not great in the first quarter, took a lead to halftime. And even if it was tied, that would have been great the way that the Celtics started the game. But it's a block by Derek White that starts this whole thing for Malcolm Brogdon to have the opportunity to hit that shot from half court, right? Then later on, he broke down Trey, help comes, he finds Al, and then Al quickly swings it to Hauser in the corner, makes it 31-25. But all that happens, right? The Hauser three happens because, again, Derek White is outplaying Trey Young, beats him off the dribble, quick pass to Al, Al to Hauser, easy three. So they continue to expose Trey Young. This guy has been a complete liability for the Hawks in this series. Then Trey Young, Derek White's being covered by Trey Young again. So he goes to set a screen for. Jason Tatum and Trey wants to avoid the switch. So what does Derek White do? He just slips the screen. Tatum throws him an easy pass and he hits a layup to make it 36-32. That's just a smart play by Derek White because he sees what Trey Young's trying to do. He's trying to avoid getting on Jason Tatum, so he takes advantage of what Trey Young is doing. Then he drove a closeout, made it 40 to 32 after a Brogdon drive, and then later on, 
Murray, his former teammate with the Spurs, he tried to pick up Derek White full court. So what did Derek White do? He just took it all the way to the basket and hit a layup because Murray's trying to like get under him, pressure him. And Derek White's like, yeah, I'm good with this. And he just went the length of the court. Then he swatted Hunter from behind on a three. Okay. Then he got in the lane, hit a floater, made it 92-81. He then hit a pull-up three to hit it 99 to make it 99-88. Top of the key three to basically ice it, make it 104-91. And then he goes coast to coast at the end of the game, hits a layup over a Kongwu, a big man, to make it 109-95. He was just unbelievable. Just so good in this game. And even again, after that, he drove by Hunter and then he realizes Hunter's on his hip. He spins back into him because he knows Hunter's going to follow him and he gets to the free throw line. It's all this stuff that Derek White does, all these smart plays, spinning back into a player. After you contest the three, getting down the court, getting the hit ahead pass, all this different type of stuff, slipping the screen because you know what the defender is doing. He's just such a smart player and he's fit in so well with this team. And I'm so glad he has the confidence level right now because you're going to need that to make a championship level run. And by the way, here's another good thing about Derek White. Now how many minutes he played on Tuesday? 34, two more than Marcus Smart. I mean, I really feel like you go back to these games that drove you crazy, like the Utah game, for example. You're like, Derek White is so good in the fourth quarter. Leave him in the game. It does feel like, and look, it took a while to get to this point, that hey, Joe Mazzulla has arrived at the conclusion, Derek White is really good at basketball and he's gonna play him down the stretch of these games. So, Maybe our nightmare is over. He's not going to put Derek White on the bench at the end of these games. Okay, and this is nothing against Marcus. I thought it was a good Marcus game. But Derek White right now, I think we can all acknowledge, is a better player than Marcus Smart. And finally, Joe Mazzulla figured that out like the rest of us had all season long. Okay, so you had those incredible plays by White. And you look at Trey Young, he was horrible, right? I mean, the numbers tell you the story, but he threw a pass to Quinn Snyder on the sideline. He just threw it away. And then he kept trying to ISOing guys like, and look, this was the Hawks in general, this whole idea of going at Hauser. We talked about this a little bit with Bill the other day as well, but especially Trey Young, he kept trying to seek out Hauser and he wasn't doing anything when he did it. And I don't really understand it. Like Trey Young's not a great isolation player. He's barely above average. He's in the 57th percentile. He shoots 40.4% in isolation and he's not like the quickest guy in the world. So he wasn't even flying by. Hauser. So, I mean, that's like what he's trying to do. And I just think about it, the end of the third quarter there, when the Hawks made their run, when they took Trey Young off the court in the third quarter, they went on a 24 to 16 run. Okay. So their best basketball for the second consecutive game has been when Trey Young is on the bench. Okay. And after that fourth, right? So, or after that third quarter, he comes in to start the fourth. What does he do? He bombs a three right away where it's not a single pass when he crosses half court. How would you like to be this guy's teammate? Like, this is sort of the difference between him and Tatum, right? Tatum has no problem passing the ball, getting off it. He's really good. Tatum is a superstar that will legitimately set screens off the ball. Like, that's very rare in the NBA. You see that from guys like Steph Curry, but it's very odd, or not very odd is the wrong word to use, but it's rare. Like, to be that selfless as a superstar player because Tatum knows it's going to lead to good stuff for his teammates. Trey Young doesn't do any of that shit. The whole offense has to be dominated by Trey Young, and we saw it again in this game. I really wonder if Quinn Snyder has the balls to just play him way less minutes next game because, hey, that lineup was good for the Hawks in this game once again when it was basically DeJounte Murray running the show. And if I'm DeJounte Murray, I'm like, did I really want to come to Atlanta to play with this guy? Is this really what I want? And I could honestly see Trey Young, and I know the rumors were out there. Kevin O'Connor had the reporting, KOC did, that 
they may move on from Trey after the season. I just don't think he's a winning player. I don't, I don't know how you could argue to the contrary with the results. And I know Scal on the broadcast kept referencing that he made it to the conference finals. That was one time. Okay, he made it to the conference finals one time when it sort of opened up when Ben Simmons forgot how to play basketball. He refused to dunk. And the other team they beat was the Knicks. It's not like that was not a real conference finals team. You thought, oh, they're going to get there again next year. No, it's not a very good team. Trey Young's not a winner. He's a losing player. All right, I did want to get to the fact that the Hawks are basically using, as I alluded to, all these David strategies, right? All these underdog strategies. And on offense, the Hawks are trying to be something they're not, which is a bombing three-point team. Like, they just want to take a million threes in this series. And here's the thing from my perspective. Once you get into a playoff series and you completely alter what you do, it just shows how desperate you are, right? You're praying for a miracle by incorporating something that you haven't done all season long. Like, this isn't a small tweak to the rotation, right? Like, the Celtics decided, you know what? Sam Hauser is better for this series than Grant Williams. That's a small tweak. What the Hawks have decided to do is they have completely changed their offense. I mean, it's really incredible. They look nothing like the team they were during the regular season. Okay, so just to put that into context here, the Hawks on the season, just 33.1% of their field goal attempts came from three-point territory. That was the lowest rate in the entire NBA, okay? They averaged 10.8 made threes per game. That was 26 in the NBA. They shot 35.2% 21st. So well below average in terms of the attempts, well below average in terms of the percentage as well. In the game tonight, they took 48 threes. 48 threes. The Warriors this season, they take the most in the NBA at 43.2. The Hawks, that's the most in the league. The Hawks took 48 in this game. The Hawks, this is a team that is taking the 28th most attempts in the NBA at 30.5. We gave you the number in terms of the lowest percentage of their shots are three or from three. They're 28th in attempts per game. And they only hit, as we alluded to, 35.2%, which is 21st. So this is just incredible that they've gone to this level. And if you start to look at it, right, so in the first half, They shot 19 non-corner threes. They hit eight of them. So that's a good percentage, right? 42.9%. You're like, all right, we got something here. On the season, they only take 22 per game, non-corner threes. Like I said, tonight, they took 19 in the first half. That 22 per game on non-corner threes is 29th in the NBA. They shoot just 34.9% on those non-corner threes, 16th. So below average. You know what they did in the second half on non-corner threes? Remember, I told you the first half, they were good. Eight of 19. Well, they went to six of 19 in the second half, which is 31.6%. You knew they would come back to earth. They can't shoot. DeAndre Hunter, worst thing that could have happened to him in this game is he hit his first two, then he missed his next seven. Trey was two of eight. John Collins is shooting south of 30% from three-point territory this season. He shot seven tonight. He was one of seven. They're a bad three-point shooting team, and they're trying to hit threes. So this whole idea, hey, you know what we got to do? The Celtics are a great three-point shooting team. We got to outshoot them from three-point territory. You know what this has done, the strategy where they're trying to be something they're not? They have a 105 offensive rating in the game on Tuesday night. The Charlotte Hornets, who played most of the season without LaMelo Ball, were were 30th, last in the league in offensive rating at 108.4. The Hawks in this game, 105. So their strategy to shoot more threes They were 3.4 points worse than the Hornets, who are the worst offense in the NBA. So I don't know what this strategy is. You're not a good three-point shooting team. 
Okay, you try to win the math game by taking more threes, but the problem is if you don't hit any of those threes, it doesn't matter. Now, the one thing I will say is the Celtics, they have to clean up the offensive glass. You're vulnerable with offensive rebounds when the other team has taken so many threes, right? Because you're going to get a long, a lot of long rebounds. <laughs> and when the team can't hit shit, they're going to be really, really long rebounds. And we saw some of that tonight. So the Celtics gave up 19. They got to clean that up. Three in the first five minutes and 15 seconds of the game. We saw the plan, right? And Hunter had an easy putback on one. He had another one that led to a three. A Kongwu had one where he got one over Al. That led to a Bogdanovich layup. So the Celtics have to clean that up because you look at that number, just way too high. Houston led the league with 13.4 offensive rebounds per game this season. They had 19 in the game tonight to the Hawks. So 5.6 more than the team that grabbed the most in the NBA. Now, Atlanta's a pretty good offensive rebounding team, but it wasn't even like it was a ton of Clint Capella, right? It was DeAndre Hunter at five of them. So they got to be able to clean that up and it's really one of the only chances Atlanta has in the series is to create extra possessions. And the possession game was uh, essentially tied tonight. Now, what it does lead to is fast break points for the Celtics when they actually do get these long rebounds. And we saw tonight, the Celtics had 17 fast break points. Only three teams were north of 17 on the season. The Hawks were 26, giving up 15.4 per game. So they're playing with fire here. This strategy where they're bombing threes, they're not hitting them. It's going to allow the Celtics, if they rebound better than they did tonight, they win this game by 40 going away. And not that they were really challenged in this game. I know that the Hawks made a little bit of a comeback as what we alluded to with Trey on the bench, but this is a situation where the Hawks are a really bad defensive team in transition. And the way that they're playing offensively, they have a chance to make that worse. It's just whether or not the Celtics can clean things up in terms of the offensive rebounding. But this whole strategy of them bombing threes, they've tried it for two games. It's not going to fucking work because they can't hit threes. Now, the other David strategy is they're trying to run the Celtics off the three-point line. So what they're doing is they're not helping on shooters. They know they have to stop the Celtics from shooting threes because the Celtics, unlike the Hawks, they take 48% of their shots from deep this season, the second highest rate in the NBA. The Celtics make 16 a game, which is the second most. They hit 37.7%, which is six in the NBA. So to put that into context, they average 48 points per game from deep and they take 42.6 per game. Okay, tonight the Celtics only took 33 shots. So Hey, the Hawks, they kept the Celtics off the three-point line, right? Okay, the problem for the Hawks is they were all good threes. The Celtics hit 15 of them. So they they shot 45.5% from three. The league leader is Philadelphia at 38.7. So the Celtics were 6.8% better than the best team in the league this season in terms of the percentage. So what was happening is the Celtics were just getting wide open threes when they actually created them, right? So the Celts, despite taking almost 10 less threes than they ordinarily do, they still score 45 points from three-point territory. So they're only three off their average despite taking 33 three-point attempts when they ordinarily take 42.6. So this whole idea, keep them off the three-point line, it actually backfired. They're hitting at an insane level in this game on Tuesday night. And the problem is when you do this, when the Hawks have decided to take this strategy, hey, let's just run the Celtics off the three-point line. That's clearly what they're trying to do, right? What's happened here is it's backfired. There is no resistance at the cup. And look, maybe what the Hawks are going to try to do going forward is what we saw a little bit in the fourth where they just go small. Because what's happening when Al Horford's on the court, and I'll get into this in a little bit in greater detail, is Clint Capella is just staying with Al Horford. <laughs> There's no rim protection whatsoever. So they're on ball defense. It's terrible to begin with. They're not a good defensive team in terms of their on ball defenders to begin with. Even Murray has had a subpar defensive season by his standards. So tonight, the Celtics in this game, they took 30 attempts in the restricted area. 
they went 23 of 30. So they hit 76.7% of their shots in the restricted area. And by the way, Tatum missed two layups. Okay, so it easily should have been 25 of 30. Only three teams took more than 30 attempts per game in the restricted area this season. The Celtics took 30 tonight. The Seas were 25th. They only took 23.9 per game. So I guess the idea was take away from them what they do best, which is bombing threes. But the problem is they're getting easy buckets. The Celtics all season long, when they actually got in the restricted area, they finished at a high level, 68.9%, which was fifth in the NBA. So they've been really efficient when they get there. And by the way, the best team in the league this year was actually the Wizards. They shot 72% in the restricted area. So the Celtics tonight were 4.7 percentage points better than the league's best team in terms of the restricted area tonight. So I don't know what they think is going to happen. What we've seen in the first two games of the series, it's a complete layup line for the Celtics because apparently, hey, you're stopping them from taking threes, even though they scored 45 points off threes. And the interesting thing here is the Celtics in this game score 64 points in the paint. Memphis led the league at 58.4. So the Celtics are 5.6 better than the league's best team. The Celtics were 23rd in point points in the paint per game this season. They're all the way up to 64 tonight. So the thing is, the Celtics are a smart enough team, although I didn't like some of the stuff Missoula said after the game about, hey, we're still losing on the margins. You're getting easy layups. You're not losing on the margins. The Hawks taking all these threes, it's not good for them. You'll live with that in a second. They don't have good three-point shooters. But anyway, the thing that I just want to allude to here is Quinn Snyder is a really smart guy, but I don't know what he's thinking with this strategy. And Atlanta, by the way, they're not getting to the free throw line either. Like, this is a place that Atlanta needed to win, right? Trey Young, top 10 in the NBA in terms of free throw attempts per game. He does a lot of that BS foul drawing, all that different type of stuff. He's having more difficulties doing it now in this series. Clearly, we've seen that one bad foul from White. Other than that, he's not getting to the free throw line at all. You realize Atlanta in this game, they didn't hit their first free throw until the fourth quarter. So that's the way they were going to win it. Try to get to the free throw line, although the Celtics don't foul, but I mean, I just feel like it's a really tough strategy to say, you know what, let's go away from everything we've done all season long and try to play completely differently. And I know Quinn Snyder got into that organization late in the season, but man, I mean, this strategy has just completely backfired on them. It's not working whatsoever. Maybe they found something. I think, quite frankly, they found something with the non-tray lineup and playing small, but we'll see if they go back to that in game three. Now, I did want to get to Tatum because I thought he was great in this game. 29 on 12 of 22 shooting, 5 of 9 from deep. And as I said, he did miss two bunnies, but he took eight attempts in the restricted area, six of eight. He took 11 in the first game. And if you look at it on the season, the only guy that takes more than 11 attempts per game in the restricted area is Giannis. But again, this comes back to the strategy of the Atlanta Hawks. If Tatum gets in there, he's going to finish. And the Hawks, there's no resistance whatsoever in terms of Tatum trying to stop him from getting to the restricted area. He gets by his defender with an easy screen. He's finishing at the basket because there is no help. But anyway... Just running through some of the stuff with him, I thought he had a nice little, with the corner empty, which this is more about the Celtic spacing. They had a corner empty, which means Tatum is one-on-one -on -one with Hunter, and there's no help coming. He just spins by Hunter, gets an easy layup, makes it 8-5. to five. And then later on, he rejects a screen from Hunter when, or I should say he rejects a screen, and Hunter's like glued to the screener, so Tatum just goes by him left, and he goes by Trey too. Trey's like the help defender in that case, and he makes it 13-7. Then he hits a three over a Kongwu. He gets some space. And these are the good threes from Jason Tatum, right? It's the step back threes with the bigger defenders. With the bigger defenders, that's when I like when Tatum gets to a step back game because he can create more space because he's more athletic than those guys. Then he got a switch on a Kongwu. I thought this is a tremendous finish. He spun and then he just went through him to make it 38-32. And that's a big dude. 
He nailed a wide open three to make it 57-44. I thought he had a great Euro around Capella to make it 59-46. He had that step back on Collins. Again, when you have a bigger defender on you, I love the fact he gets to a step back game then. That's when I like it. He had another step back on DeAndre Hunter to make it 70-55, which at this point, I mean, Hunter's got no chance against Tatum whatsoever. No chance against Jalen either. And then he had that, how about that no-look pass he had to Al when he was on the wing, hit Al, more on the passing in a second, to make it 72-55. He then hit a wing three to make it 107-94. And then, this is the pass of the night from Tatum. He got doubled on the wing, on the right wing, okay? He throws a one-handed whip pass in the corner to Al Horford, who nails a three to make it 114-97. You just don't see those type of passes, right? That's like a LeBron James level pass. And look, don't go crazy. I'm not saying that he's a LeBron James level passer, but there's not a lot of guys that can make that pass with one hand from the right wing to the left corner. You have to be strong to do that. And you have to have the vision to be able to do that as well. Tremendous pass by him. And then he had that. I love the fact he had that block on Trey at the end of the game. And then he had dunk on the other end to make it 119.97. Just again, another example of the Celtics just abusing Trey Young in this series. And it's huge to me. The big thing that I've taken away from this series so far with Tatum is he's taken the right threes. So, so far in this series, now eight of 16 from deep. And they're good threes. They're step backs on bigs. And he's getting to some catch and shoot threes as well, right? Because (laughs) everything's opening up for the Celtics offense. And Tatum, despite his three-point numbers being bad this season, most of those are from the pull-up variety. If you look at Tatum's numbers on the season on catch and shoot threes, he's actually north of 40%. So whenever he has those opportunities, certainly take them when he gets the ball kicked him. And then the other component, and you're going to get more of those with Brogdon and Jalen as the playoffs go on. Tatum will get more catch and shoot opportunities than he did in last year's postseason run. But the step backs on the bigs, I don't mind it. I like when he has a small guard on him, I like him to go by that guy, get into the lane. When it's a big, I don't mind him taking the step back because he creates so much separation on those guys. I just feel like Tatum... Drive on the small guys because you can power through them, especially with the muscle he's added. On the big guys, fine with the step back threes. And he has, right now, he has that step back game going, which is huge for this team going forward. All right, another guy I thought was great and lifted them in the first quarter was Robert Williams, who really injected life into the garden when he checked into the game. So he finishes with eight points, five boards, two blocks, all that. But I just thought he ran the floor really well at the beginning of the game. He got deep post position. He sealed off Hunter in transition. Got a pass from Jalen, cut it to 22 to 13. And this again is, hey, this team, they're going to give up long rebounds, run the floor. Then he got a cross match in transition where Bogdanovich was on him, got post position again. They find him, makes it 22 to 15. Then he ran the court after a Jalen block. Brogdon found him, made it 22 17. So I just thought he did a really good job running the floor. He had that beautiful pass where they kicked it to him at the low block. He immediately saw that Marcus Smart was wide open. It was almost like a touch pass. Found smart, smart drains a three. And then you start to think about it, the fact that Tatum, one of the bunnies he missed, Rob grabbed the the miss and just dunked it back in. And then the big play and the play that really got the crowd going tonight was the verticality on Collins, where he jumps with Collins. Al comes from behind and just swats it. At that point in the game, it's 76-59. You go on the other side of the court and Al knocks down a three. So that was like one of my favorite plays of the night. And... Look, I know he played well with Al in that one sequence, but I really think this is a good move by Missoula to bring Rob off the bench because what we're seeing is Al is providing spacing with that first unit. They're not helping off him whatsoever, and I'll get into that in a second here, 
But secondarily, Rob brings a different dimension. And having him being the only big, you have a guy that's roaming to the basket and he's getting really easy opportunities because everybody's beating their guy off the dribble. And if he continues to leak out in transition the way that he's leaking out in transition, the Hawks, not that they had any chance in the series, but it's just another element they're not prepared to deal with. All right. I thought it was a good Brogdon game, despite the fact that he was only four of 11. He was a plus 20, which was tied with Al for the best on the team. 13 points, eight assists, seven boards, great floor game. And he had that huge buzzer beater at the end of the first too, which is awesome to see the half quarter made it 28-25. But I thought early in this game, he gets in and not early, but in the second quarter, I thought one of the things that he did really well was defensively, he was really active and he picked Collins, goes the other way, finds Smart for a layup. That made it 52-42. Runs the break. He found Tatum for a wide open layup. He went right by Bogdanovich with a nice lefty finish. Then he had a nice step back too. And then he drove by Trey for a layup. And this is a theme. Like whenever these guys see Trey on him, whether it's Marcus, whether it's Derek, whoever it is, they just go at him. I mean, they're just abusing this guy. And then he drove, he found White for a layup to make it 101-91 where Derek White, just another smart play by him. He noticed that Brogdon was driving. He's in the dunker spot. He just cuts, gets an easy layup. So anyway, just a really nice floor game by Brogdon, despite the fact that the shooting has not been good. I think he's making plays and I think he's putting pressure on that Hawks defense by continually driving to the basket. And I thought it was a good smart game. He was six of 11 from the floor, 14, six and five. He had a pull up three off an owl screen for no reason at the beginning of the game. And I was thinking to myself, and he missed it, by the way, thinking to myself, why is he doing this? There's no pass in the possession. Like, don't do this, Marcus. And then there was another possession where he dribbles up, no pass, takes a three. And I'm thinking to myself, why is he doing this? This is not going to be a good smart game. But then he got it together. In transition, he found Tatum for an easy bucket to make it 54-42. He then abused Trey in the post to make it 74-57. That's, I'm okay with smart doing that every once in a while. He had a nice lefty floater over Hunter to make it 76-59. So I thought overall, the shots he took were pretty good outside of those ones early in this game. I actually thought his shot selection got better as the game went on, and he had the three steals. I thought he made a couple of Marcus Smart plays. He was really good defensively. He does, and look, maybe this is just me, and maybe it's just the Atlanta Hawks. He does look a little bit more athletic as we're now in the postseason. I thought he did not have a great defensive season. I gave you the numbers prior to the postseason. His defense clearly slipped. He even acknowledged that he'd been dealing with that ankle thing throughout the season. But I thought this is a good Marcus Smart game. I thought all the guards, quite frankly, were tremendous for the Celtics. Brogdon was great. White was, I mean, out of this world great. And Smart was really good as well. All right, then there's Al, just the eight points. But as we alluded to with the Brogdon stuff, plus 20. He had three blocks in this game, but here's why the Celtics are getting layups right now. And Clint Capella acknowledged it during shoot around that the reason the Celtics are so difficult to cover for the Hawks is because of Al Horford. And here's why Al Horford this season is in the 95th percentile in spot ups. So when he's just hanging out on the wing, those spot up opportunities, right, where the defense is sagging off him, it's not a direct catch and shoot opportunity. He has time to settle down and take those shots. So on the season on spot ups, He's 107 of 230 overall. That's 46.5%, 67% effective field goal percentage. That just accounts for threes being more than twos. So 67% effective field goal percentage, 1.32 points per possession. And these are 45% of the possessions for Al Horford. That number was just at 33.1% last year, which is a high number, but that 45%, right? That's a massive increase. We're talking about 12 percentage points, right? So I give Joe Mazzola a lot of credit for this, where 
they don't use Al as much as the screener anymore. They use him as the spacer because ordinarily Al's going to have a big man on him. I do wonder if the Hawks are going to make an adjustment, take a big man off him, because if you're just going to leave your big man out there, you're going to have no protection at the rim, although it doesn't feel like the Hawks care about protecting the rim whatsoever. But this is definitely something to monitor about going forward in the postseason, right? Because we saw it last year when Al could get hot, what it does for this team from an offensive perspective. And now this year, as we all know, second in the NBA in three-point shooting at 44.6%. I mean, the guy's been incredible. He's been a flamethrower this season. So I just look at it from, if it's Philly, who is Philly going to put on Al Horford? Are they going to put a smaller player on him or are they going to put Embiid on him? If they put Embiid on Al Horford, Embiid is not going to be able to camp out in the paint. So I think this is a major development, not just for this series. Now, the Hawks have been exposed because of Al in this series. A large part of why they're being exposed is his ability to shoot from three-point territory. Obviously, they have a lot of issues as well. But I just wonder how big this is going to be going forward. And look, we've criticized Joe Missoula times this season. This may have been one of the best things he did, other than the confidence with Derek White, where I've, I've told you multiple times, I thought he's great for Derek White. This strategy of having Al be more of a spot-up guy and not setting a lot of screens this year, this could be major going into the rest of this postseason run for the Celtics, because I do think it makes them really, really difficult to defend. And then you bring in the other element when it's Robert Williams, well, then you have that lob threat and you have the offensive rebounder and all that different type of stuff. Uh, just real quick on Al. I love when he made the timeout sign after his dunk. He made it 72-55. I love postseason Al. Like, he's got a little bit more swagger. We all, of course, remember the thing with Giannis last year, but he made the timeout sign. And then the block on Collins is phenomenal. And we talked about this with the Rob situation. He hit the three on the other side. But that, making the timeout sign, I love that from Al Horford. This guy's 36. He's blocking a shot on one end. He's getting down the other end and hitting three-pointers. I hope this team wins a championship, obviously for a lot of reasons, but Al would be one of the big ones. All right. Also in this game, the Celtics had 12 blocks. Horford had three. White had three. Rob had two. And we shouldn't be surprised by White. The guy was second in the NBA among guards and shot blocks this year. But the number, 12, Brooklyn led the league at 6.1. So the Celtics doubled that. So the Hawks, when they do occasionally drive, they're bombing threes. They're not good at shooting threes, but they're bombing threes. When they do drive, they're just getting swatted. All right, Jalen, that's the one concern for me here. Okay, it looked like he asked to come out of that game at the nine-minute mark. After he had that block, he landed on the hand. He was looking at the hand. Missoula said that he didn't ask to come out. I, I don't know if that's true. It looked like he ran right over to the bench. So I don't know what to make of that. But it does feel like something's up with the hand. And quite frankly, I was not ready for this. I was not ready to talk about Jalen's hand. And I hope it's not an issue going forward. I mean, you wonder what the we're going to be talking about this throughout the whole postseason. Is it going to get better? Is it re-aggravated? So it's just it's something that I was not ready to have to talk about. And we saw again four turnovers for Jalen in this game after six in game one. I don't know if that's the hand issue. I thought that Except the fact when he came out of the game, I thought the hand issue was more visible in game one because he was sort of looking at it more. We didn't see that until the fourth quarter when, even though Joe Mazzulla says he didn't ask to come out, that's when you kind of saw Jalen was in pain. So I just, I don't want to just attribute the turnover solely to that, but clearly the hand is an issue right now. I don't think there's any way around that. Now, I will say, if you look early in this game, he had the bad pass looking for Al. That leads to a tray three the other way to make it 11 to five. I don't know what he was trying to do with that out pass. Then he got to the hoop. He got blocked by Capella. And then he had a double dribble. So he had three straight bad possessions at the beginning of this game. And then on a four on three, it's 22 to 13. He just throws it away. Now he had a wide open shooter in Hauser on the left wing. 
He just kind of threw it in front of him. I, I don't know what he was thinking on that particular play. So I don't know if it's the hand. I don't know if this is some of what we saw last year in the postseason where you just kind of hit your head like, what is Jalen doing on these things? Or maybe it's a combination of both of them, right? Because we know that Jalen can be a turnover heavy player. We've seen it throughout his career. But then I thought he sort of got it together. He drove by, by a Kongu, got a bucket, had a nice fadeaway too to make it 22-19. He has been a tremendous cutter, really. I would say over the last month of the season, him and Smart have this thing. We're in transition. He's just cutting, and Smart is constantly finding. Made a back cut, a dunk to make it 63-49, and then he cut on Collins, where he got an easy opportunity. Now, he did miss a free throw, but 67-53 at that point. Had a hard drive to get by John Collins to make it 94-81, and then he left with a hand situation with 9-19 left. He still finishes the game. He... Did come back in, but he still finishes the game with 18. He finishes, what, 7 of 14 from the field, three steals, two blocks. But I just wonder how long we're going to be talking about this issue. Is this something where, hey, the Celtics finish this series up early against the Hawks, they get some time off, and he's fine for the Philly series? Or it's just something we have to keep in the back of our mind right now. Is this something that we're going to continue to discuss throughout the postseason? Is this hand situation with Jalen Brown? It's just unfortunate, but... You look at it, and clearly, I know they're saying that he didn't ask to come out of the game, but it clearly looks like this has been an issue. Jalen acknowledged it after game one that it came open. So it's just, it's unfortunate. Like, this Celtics team has everything they possibly need to make a run. I just hope it's not altered by the hand situation with Jalen Brown. So whatever it is, get this thing ready to go for the next series. Because the Hawks, uh, this series is over. And you do wonder, like, if they think he's going to keep aggravating it. Do they look at it and say, okay, we're up to nothing, two in Atlanta. Do we possibly try to sit him out for game three, see if that thing is completely healed up, and then play him in game four? Or if we're up three nothing, do we even need to play him in game four? So I just wonder if the Celtics are going to start to look at this thing and say, this isn't a series. The Hawks have no chance whatsoever. If this thing keeps happening, is it going to keep reoccurring? Do we need to just give them time off now? So I do wonder what the decision making process is going to be going forward with this hand situation, which is just one of the only bad things that has happened for the Celtics throughout this postseason so far. I know it's only two games, but they've been downright dominant. Oh, one other note is Philadelphia is now up 2-0, of course, on Brooklyn. They won on Monday night. Brooklyn, that was their best shot to win that game two where they were in it. They had the lead and... Harden was just awful in that game from a shooting perspective. Now, Maxi went off for them, and B did his thing, but that was the game for Brooklyn to win. They're not going to be competitive in the series. I don't believe, quite frankly, that Brooklyn right now is well-coached. I don't understand some of the stuff they're trying to do in the series because, from my perspective, I'm trying to get some wins for Brooklyn here. I want Brooklyn to win, so Philly's got to play extra games. But I think that Philly's going to sweep Brooklyn. So the bottom line is Celtics just end this series early, so you're as well-rested as the 76ers are, and maybe even more importantly, Get Jalen Brown some rest, get Al Horford is 36 some rest, get Rob some rest, and get ready for a showdown with the Philadelphia 76ers. All right, a lot more to get into. The Bees up 1-0 in their series. They're getting ready for Game 2 on Wednesday night. We'll chat with Connor Ryan from The Globe and Boston.com in just a little bit. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, 
you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike after the Bruins, of course, won their opener on Monday night over the Florida Panthers 3-1. to Joining us now from the Globe, you read his stuff on Boston.com as well. It is Connor Ryan. Connor, how are you, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I'm glad you said you're doing well because I just want to make sure with this bug going around the Bruins. I mean, you're covering this team a lot. You haven't caught it yet, apparently. Apparently not. No, I, I'm in the clear so far. I'm one of the choice few, apparently, because, yeah, it's it's been going on for a few weeks now, and it seems like it's one of those nasty ones where every time you think guys are over it and they're healthy, all of a sudden another guy catches it. A few days, another guy catches it. It just keeps on being like a prolonged thing that, again, couldn't happen at a worse time for the Bruins. Yeah, so obviously Bergeron misses game one because of it, and we heard David Pasternak during intermission saying he was dealing with it, with it just a couple of weeks ago. It, it is kind of weird, though. <laughs> I guess now the germs are going around, so it doesn't really matter with the team. Like, Bergeron was in the dressing room before the game when they were giving the speech prior to the game. It's kind of, But I guess everybody at this point has already been exposed, right? Exactly. I think at this point, you're like, might as well either everyone has already had some bout of it already, or at this point, just... Let's get it over with, right? Like, we don't want it to be uh, a few days, someone gets it, someone else. Maybe just, like, bring up the AHL team in a couple of days if need be, if it means getting this virus out of the way. But it just keeps on carrying on and on uh, in terms of guys uh, going down with it. All right, so first and foremost, you were in the building for Game 1. I watch it on TV. I thought it looked from... The TV version of it, at least, it looked electric. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of when you go up 2-0 in game one of your opening round series, like the We Want the Cup chance. I get it. A lot of NHL cities do it. I'm not the biggest fan of that. But overall, I thought the environment in there was pretty cool last night. It looked good. Was it? Did it feel that way being there? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's always a different animal when you get to the Stanley Cup playoffs in the crowd. and It definitely helps it being on Marathon Monday. I think people... Uh, took full advantage of maybe a few extra hours uh, of you know, hitting up a few different establishments. So I think people were uh, rowdy, ready to go for that game. And I, I think especially look at this year, it's it's almost like you went into the season expecting it to be the last hurrah. And you know, whatever happens, happens. Let's just be appreciative of this kind of contention window that you have. And then for Bruins fans to be in the midst of a record-breaking season, a season where they're probably the overwhelming favorite uh, going into the playoffs. I think there's not like swagger, but I think there's like rivalry involved with with just how great you know this team has been and the start of this playoff run. So I wouldn't say that everyone's thinking they're front runners, but you're seeing a lot of that like that confidence, that that joy in terms of what this particular Stanley Cup run means for this team. Yeah, and you probably had a couple of people, or more than a couple of people, doing the double. Maybe the marathon, then to the game. Oh, yeah. Maybe the Red Sox, then over to the game. That's a long day, but nonetheless, it made up for a good crowd. So. I want to start with Olmark because, of course, he left his final game of the season and we kept hearing he's going to be fine. He's going to be fine. But you never know until you actually see him on the ice. And he looked fine last night. I mean, what, 15 saves in that first period in game one. And that's when the Panthers really they were controlling things in that first period and had some big saves late. The one on Reinhardt comes to mind. He had one on Montour as well. Overall, you look at some of the advanced stuff, 2.25 goals saved above expectation and look, he's been doing this all season long, and he was number one in the NHL and goal saved above expected per 60. So we know he's going to win the Vesna. We know how 
exceptional his season's been, but you go back to last year's postseason, what was it, eight goals in two games? He wasn't great. We were worrying, okay, let's make sure he's completely healthy entering the playoffs. But, I mean, I thought this was the biggest difference maker in the game for the Bruins last night, that Olmark was just outstanding. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's something with Olmark. Throughout this season, I think we've been setting up expectations or barriers in terms of when this guy might hit a wall or, or when he's going to tire out. This is a guy that before this year, his uh, career high in games played, I think was 41, and that was last year. So, all right, we're in January and February. Like, all right, probably going to slow down now. He hasn't hit this workload, hasn't slowed down, hits the playoffs. All right, it's a different animal. He's not really a tested goalie like a guy like Vasilevsky in the playoffs. Can he keep it going? Showed that in, in this game last night against the Panthers. And I think that's why this Bruins team is so tough. If you had to ask, like, as an opponent, how do you describe playing the Bruins? I think demoralizing is, is the word it has to be because, as you said, the Bruins in the first and even the second really weren't playing their, their A game. I think Jim Montgomery said afterwards it was their C-plus game. Wasn't really careful with the puck, made things easy for uh, Florida's forecheck. But if you're, if you're Florida, you look at that game. You played a pretty good game. You generated a lot of high-danger chances. They still lost by two you know, with Chris Bergeron out of the lineup. And I think what makes this team so good is there's so many different areas of the lineup that even if maybe the execution isn't there, maybe the defense has a lapse, there's another segment of the roster, whether it's the forwards, the goaltending, that, that holds its own. And that's why it's so tough to really consistently beat this team because it's tough to get kind of all those different segments of the Bruins all uh, struggling on one night. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting, too, what Montgomery said after the game, because I kind of agreed with him. He also said that he thought, I think the intensity of the playoffs surprised us a little bit, that we had some nerves. I thought Krejci looked really rusty as he was making his way back, of course, coming back from an injury. But you look at the five-on-five play in that first period, it's 13-4 to in terms of the shots advantage to the Panthers. Now, a lot of those are low-percentage shots for the Panthers, but... It stuck out to me that in total that Bertuzzi, Pasternak, Krejci line was outshot 19 to 11 on five on five. And look, you're without your Selkie award winner, your captain, as we mentioned in Bergeron. And the Bees pick it up in the third period. They outshot the Panthers 11-7 on five on five. So I totally understand where Montgomery was coming from with this. The Panthers, they've been in postseason mode for a while, right? Like they really had to claw and scratch just to get into the postseason. And the Bruins have been dealing with this stretch of, Okay, yeah, the records were there, but they've been resting guys. And it's almost like Jake DeBrus said after the game that they've been just waiting almost to get here. Not that they weren't trying to win all these games and win the records, but it's different when basically with the Panthers, their playoff lives were on the line. And for the Bruins, it was the totally opposite of this. They clinched months ago, it felt like, right? So I totally can understand where the Bruins are coming from. And it just feels like if you're the Panthers, going back to the point that you made, okay, you have this whole thing. What was it? Lead dogs. They're like having these t-shirts about being the underdogs, lead dogs. The Bruins did not play well. The coach acknowledges after the game that the Bruins didn't play well. And you still lost the game. And Bergeron didn't play. To me, this, and we can look at some of the issues the Bruins have, but this has just got to be incredibly deflating to the word you used for this Panthers team as they get ready for game two, because that's the one it felt like you needed to have in that game because the Bruins are going to be much better in game two. Exactly, yeah. And it, whether it's Bergeron coming back or just guys being a more crisp and poised with the puck, you know, it's not like the Bruins were doing anything that's out of character or what have you. It's just simple execution, like just some careless plays with the puck. Florida, as much as they're a rush-heavy team, does they do a lot of damage on the forecheck and forcing turnovers. If you're not moving the puck with authority, they can make you pay in a hurry. A guy like Kachuk can... You know, he can operate in time and space and make plays kind of out of nothing. Um, so for the Bruins, it's, it's easily correctable things. It wasn't like outliers or anything like that. So as you said, 
you expect that team to uh, put together a stronger effort. You had guys like Krejci, Felino, even Taylor Hall, who's a few games removed from coming off the injured injured list. Um, you have guys who are you're expecting to play better, and for Florida, you're kind of stuck in this limbo of, all right, you're probably looking at that game. You're really put, you're happy with how your offense generated chances. You uh, really controlled a lot of ozone chips, but like the big equalizer, like Florida has a really high ceiling offensively, but that defense, it's one that you can't see it lasting over a, a seven game series or best of seven series against the Bruins. You just don't have, I don't think the personnel in place to hold off the Bruins. And I don't see the Bruins losing a couple of games, six, five, six, four, what have you. Like they're just not built uh, to, to fall into those kind of shootout kind of games. Yeah. I'm with you on that. So by the way, Bergeron is questionable again for Wednesday. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon after the optional skate. I know you tweeted out that Montgomery's saying he's feeling better, that Bergeron's feeling better about this, but hopefully have him back. But man, the luxury of Pavel Zaka to me in that game on Monday, I thought he was tremendous. He won a puck battle behind the net on that DeBrusque goal, that, that crazy DeBrusque goal where he just hit it off the pad, which is insane. But Huge play by Zaka behind the net. You look at the Corsi percentage for 64.5%, which is just, if you're unfamiliar listening, it's some of the shots on goal, missed shots and block shots over the shots against missed shots and block shots against at even strength. So he was really good. I mean, this guy is ordinarily your second line left wing. And I know, look, they signed him to the extension where he's going to play a lot of center going forward with some of the guys eventually retiring and whatnot. But I mean, what a luxury to have when, and look, this team's played really well when Bergeron hasn't played this season, but it's amazing you just bump this guy up to <laughs> to play in the first game of the postseason and he performs the way he did. Yeah, no, he's been a, a tremendous pickup for the team. And it's a, a testament to, I think, the depth this team has that how many times in years past did you have a situation where Bergeron goes down with an injury or Krejci and everyone's hitting the, you know, the, the siren for DEFCON 1, right, in terms of just what this team is dealing with because you just never had another guy you could turn to. Like in years past, all right, Charlie Coyle could play a few games up in the top six if, six if need be, but it's not really his kind of role. He's kind of better suited as that defensive puck possession third-line center. So to have a guy like Zaka, who's a natural center anyway, has a little bit more high-end skill and more poise with the puck, um, he's fit seamlessly there. And it's something that not only helps the team right now in terms of, as you said, they really didn't lose a lot of offensive generation with Zaka in that spot, but it gives the Bruins something they haven't had in years in terms of addressing probably the biggest issue moving forward, which is just options down the middle, right? It wasn't like yeah. the Bruins were looking at a few prospects that weren't panning out. They just didn't have, they didn't have anyone really to turn to. So if you have a guy like Zaka who has fit in very well this year, whether it's generating chances, it's been good in his own end as well. Um, solid kind of wherever you put him for a guy like that, who has, you know, close to 60 points. It, it just, it speaks to the team of this, that, Don Sweeney has built in terms of how he's able to continue to drive play when you're missing such a key guy out of the lineup like Bergeron. And I thought that Tyler Bertuzzi's playoff debut, not just Bruins playoff debut, playoff debut in general was awesome. And I know you have an article up today about Bertuzzi's performance. And look, he stole Nick Cousins' stick, took it back to the bench, which I thought was hilarious. He said, I mean, it's the playoffs. There's going to be some stupid things that happen. And that was one of them. It just seems like he is, and I know he's just got here at the trading deadline. He's the prototypical Bruin, right? He had that beautiful feed, by the way, to posture knock on that power play goal. He was right in the middle of the DeBrusque goal, too. And I just look at the fact that this guy, he maybe is not here. And I don't know, maybe, maybe is too strong to say it. Like, he's probably not here if Taylor Hall doesn't go on long-term IR, right? Like, that's part of the reason you make that move, considering that he is an unrestricted free agent at the end of the season. 
But I think his passing has been really impressive since he came over. I mean, I'm not going to say that I was glued into what he did prior to coming to the Bruins, but that's the thing that stuck out to me, the passing and kind of in the Marshawn mold of like getting underneath everybody's skin. We saw that last night. Even Marshawn said after the game, he fits in and all that. But I mean, Bertuzzi, I thought he was really impressive in that game. And I feel like he's going to be a major part of this run for the Bees going forward. Yeah, absolutely. He's a guy that I think Jim Montgomery even said at post game. He's a guy that's built for the playoffs, which is something you don't hear for a guy that made his you know Stanley Cup debut uh, yesterday. <laughs> yeah. But you just look at his style of play and what he brings. Um, it perfectly fits, I think, what teams really covet and look for in terms of you know trade deadline acquisitions for the playoffs. And in years past, you're looking at all right for the playoffs. You need a guy that's six three, two twenty five. You need a, a big lumbering guy that can dole out a lot of punishment. And I think you look at guys like Bertuzzi, you look at Tampa Bay getting guys like Blake Coleman and Barclay Goudreau. These aren't the biggest guys out there, but they play inside. They're a pain in the ass to play against. They're always doing something after the whistle. And I think those are the guys that in today's NHL, those are the ones that wear on you. Those are the ones that drive you crazy over a long series. And as you said, like I think what stands out to me about Bertuzzi is how good he is at the net front. And he's not Pat Maroon or one of these guys that's screening goalies or, or you know, using his his size to box guys out. But he's so good, I think, at operating uh, with the puck with limited time and space that he can make things happen. Like, for that play to Pasternak to not in that millisecond of reaction time to just go for the simple second chance backhand shot against Lyon, to have the wherewithal to pass it behind the back to, to Pasternak for a pretty much empty net goal. That's what I think the Bruins need in terms of a net front guy. You look at how they've acquired guys like Nick Ritchie in the past and how they thought that could help solve that, you know, that ability to fight into inside ice. Having a poised playmaker like Bertuzzi, I think, is what makes the world of a difference when you get to this style of NHL in uh, 2023. Yeah, he was great. And the other guy was that I thought played really well is another guy that got the trading deadline, which was Dmitry Orlov. Now, he, of course, did have that misplay on the Kachuk goal, which, of course, he would like to have that one back, you would say. I mean, that was a pretty ugly thing there from... Orloff, but overall, nine shot attempts, by far the most on the Bruins. I believe five on goal or four on goal. No, five on goal, most on the team as well. Most of his ice time last night with McAvoy, north of 16 minutes on ice with McAvoy. But I really like what he brought to the table. We know that he's an offensive-minded defenseman, and that's why we thought, oh, he'd fit into Jim Montgomery's system when they brought him over from Washington. But what did you make of his performance in game one? Yeah, exactly. Even you look past the the turnover on the Kachuk goal, which was even like kind of a, just a weird bounce. The, the puck was bouncing all over the place in that game on Monday. But I think you look what Orlov brings and it kind of goes into what I think Montgomery has mapped out for his lineup in terms of goes back to the whole thing about demoralizing. Like he, he mentioned back in November how tough it is for opponents where you look at the Bruins and you have the whiteboard and you're looking at Charlie McAvoy and his body of work and how tough he is to match up against. Then you look at Lindholm and how he was playing and how they're on different pairs. And all of a sudden you have another number one defenseman, essentially in Orlov, a guy that, you know, has won a Stanley cup before who can play a whole bunch of different styles of play um, to have him added to the mix, just make it so much tougher for any team to find weak links of, of the decor. And so for him to, whether it's him driving his own pair in the third pairing or, or playing with McAvoy, he just adds another minutes eating guy that just is built for how the playoffs are. And I think he adds another dynamic on that decor as well terms of that shot like you look at the Bruins they are not uh they have no shortage of playmaking guys on the blue line whether it's McAvoy or Lindholm or Cruz like what have you but Orlov with that cannon of a shot adds that extra dynamic like in years past 
yes, you could give a little more of that blue line to have guys like McAvoy operate up there because you know they're not really going to have a, a heavy one-time or a slap shot that you have to respect out there. Having Orlov changes that. You have to have a guy pressure out high. You have to have a guy kind of take away that shooting lane. And again, it's a domino effect. It leads to more available ice down uh, by the slot, by the crease. And that's where, you know, guys like Bertuzzi, Bergeron kind of go to work. So just having a guy that adds that extra skill set makes an already very, very good Bruins team that much tougher to defend night in and night out. Yeah. And you think about it too, the power play for the Bruins in that game. I thought the first one was what we saw for like a large stretch this season in terms of them struggling there, but they got the late chance on that first power play. And then I thought maybe one of the dumbest moves of the night was Smith taking that penalty where it didn't even affect the play. I mean, that was just mind boggling considering the fact that Florida came out with all this energy. You put the Bruins back out on the power play and you get that, of course, that goal from David Pasternak. But overall, what did you make of the Bruins power play? The first one, not so great, but did you think maybe they caught some momentum on that second one? Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, the Bruins power play has been kind of stuck in a rut for a good portion of the second half of the season. They kind of heated up down the stretch there, which was encouraging. But I think you look at this is not a, a series where Florida has to be taking those those uh, unnecessary penalties because they just don't have the PK personnel in place to hold off the Bruins. Because you also look at the way that the Panthers kind of structure the penalty kill. It's kind of like their five on five play. They love pressuring puck carriers up high. They love kind of forcing those turnovers and hoping for an odd man, shorthanded chance or what have you. And that that can work in practice if you're a team like the Carolina Hurricanes that love to pressure but have a very good defensive structure in place as well. Florida doesn't. So if you're pressuring guys up high, all you're going to do is essentially leave more room open for a guy like Bergeron at the bumper, David Poster and I get the left circle. Like that's the PK that the Bruins want to be matched up against where you're going to be leaving up those areas of the ice because that's, where they generally do most of their damage. So again, you, you have to give credit to a guy like Bertuzzi for setting up that play down low, but you looked at that, just where guys were stationed in the seconds leading up to that goal, whole lot of black and gold sweat is right in and around the net there. And if Florida's going to keep on pressuring guys high like that, more of those chances I think are going to be there for the Bruins in this series. Yeah, and maybe that gets the Bruins going in terms of the power play is maybe having some success here in round one as they get ready for a bigger matchup in game two, knock on wood, of course, that they get there. I don't want to jinx anything, but one of the odd numbers from game one with Lindholm and Carlo on the ice, they, the shots on five on five were 10 to six in favor of Florida. The shot attempts were 21 to six. So I felt like there was obviously an effort from Florida to get pucks to the net, get bodies to the net. And as I alluded to earlier, a lot of those were low percentage shots that Florida was taking. But what did you make of that pairing in game one? Anything to read into with those numbers? Or do you think it's just one of these games where you throw it away and the Bruins will be much better in game two? Yeah, I think it also is a testament to, one, it's how Florida likes to operate. They're a team that is near the top of the league in terms of shots per 60, high danger chances. They pretty much pepper the net from whatever angle. You saw a lot in that game, a lot of point shots, a lot of looking for tips and rebounds. So um, that can somewhat tilt how a uh, defensive pairing looks in terms of how they're matched up against what the shot totals are. Lindholm and Carlo are also usually deployed a lot in the D zone, which kind of can change those numbers uh, a good deal. But uh, Montgomery kind of talked about it today on, on Tuesday over at Warrior Arena about uh, he was pleased with what he saw from those two guys in terms of what their matchups were, whether it's limiting guys like Barkov or, or, or Kachuk or what have you. I think even if those are the guys you have to roll out there that are going to get hemmed in their own zone or what have you. I think Carlo and Lindholm have the skill set, whether it's uh, stick play, uh, bigger bodies, that, again, you can have them out there kind of treading water, but very rarely do you have those extended ozone shifts 
lead the pucks into the back of the net. So even if uh, they're the guys you have to kind of staple to the the D zone, uh, they generally end up doing pretty well for what their skill set is on this on this lineup. All right. So speaking of the D pairings, Nomad Grizzlick in game one, you uh, you look at it, the goals four percentage with him on the ice this season, 70.1%, which is number one amongst defensemen. Now, in fairness, the three guys behind him are all Bruins too, right? So Forbert's back and we know how good and how valuable he's been to this team on the penalty kill this season. And they've been by far the best penalty kill in the NHL. And as we mentioned earlier, you have Orloff played most of his time with McAvoy last night. So you start to do out the pairings thing. It was just kind of like he was the odd man out, right? Because Clifton's playing with Forbert and you kind of understand in this matchup, some of the stuff you were just talking about, they like to get pucks to the net. And you think about Forbert, who's big, what, 6'4", he's north of 200. Grizzlick's 5'10". I don't even think he's a buck 80. So you could kind of understand where that kind of went in terms of the decision-making process for Montgomery. Do you expect that to be the same going forward? Or do you think we'll see Grizzlick at some point during this series? Yeah, I think barring a, a full kind of, you know, multiple breakdowns from a guy like forward, I have to imagine uh, Montgomery is going to stick with forward. Because as you said, I think it just is a testament to just how Florida matches up. And it goes back to, I think, the luxury the Bruins have that I think they can augment this decor and this whole lineup based on whatever the matchup is. So if you're against a team like Florida that uh, generates a lot of their chances down low, having a guy like Forbert out there who can eat pucks, who can clear pucks with ease, um, can help you out a great deal. If you're playing the uh, New Jersey Devils who are rush heavy, uh, very fast, and I think the biggest key for negating their offense is just getting the puck out, then maybe you switch to a guy like Grizzlick who's able to transition well, has really crisp first passes, and kind of gets you out of danger in a hurry. So um, I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised if Forbert sticks in the lineup, but it's a testament to just what the Bruins have and um, uh, a statement on how deep this team is that you have seven very viable defensemen that I think every other team in the NHL probably covets around this time of year. I know it is pretty, pretty crazy. Like I know Grizzly has had his issues in the postseason in the past, but the fact that you could have a guy that's this good not playing in game one of your playoff series, it's pretty nuts. And I know you tweeted out after the optional skate today that Montgomery said that Taylor Hall was one of the Bruins best players. He was impressed with his D zone play, which led to some scoring chances in transition. And he had the most takeaways of the Bruins in game one. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I always get excited like when he gets out in transition, like him and DeBrusque are the two guys that I mean, it's just the speed is amazing when those guys get out. But he had just come back from the injury, what, a couple of games ago. So it's not like he's had a long runway here prior to the postseason. What did you make of his performance in game one? Yeah, no, I think it's encouraging. I, I think when you look at a guy who's coming back from especially a lower body injury that he had to seek a second opinion. You don't know the severity of it. I think the one thing you're concerned about for a guy whose game is kind of built on that straight line speed is just how much acceleration he has, how many gears can he kind of shift into and didn't look really hindered in, in that game against Florida in terms of uh, getting the puck moving, getting odd man rushes. Probably would have liked him to have a bit more of a shot first mentality in a few of those rushes. But that being said, those are two, I think, great A chances that he set up Trent Frederick for that. Alex Lyon more or less just kind of robbed him there. So I think if you have Hall playing in that spot uh, on the third line and, and what he brings and whether it's uh, getting the puck out, whether it's making for easy entries in the power play, his kind of unique skill set is something that the Bruins definitely need during this playoff run. And to have him on the third line, I think it's a, a credit to him that you look at how good this team is, but for Hall, who's what, five years removed from an MVP season to accept kind of more of a defensive role-playing spot there on the third line. So that's what I think a guy who I think above all else really wants to win uh, this season with the Bruins. 
Yeah, and I agree with you too. Like one of those, he just kind of telegraphed. Like you know, it was coming the yeah. whole time to Frederick. And Frederick, I mean, in Hall's defense, Frederick got like nothing on one of those. So I mean, you'd like to see Frederick get a little bit more on that. But that bottom six in general last night. I mean, I think about the end of the game. I thought Coyle was really good, and I thought Nosek Woody won ten of his fourteen faceoffs, yeah. and a lot of those were in the defensive. And so I thought he was really good. And then at the end of the game, the bottom six, and I know the goal got taken away by Hathaway when he hit it out of Lions uh, glove, mm-hmm. but that whole sequence there, they were living in the defensive zone for the Panthers. I thought that sort of ended the game, even though the goal didn't count. I thought that was really impressive. So what did you make of the bottom six in general? Yeah, I think that it's a, a grouping there that can kind of swing the momentum in any single game, right? You look at, I think, just how good Coyle has been this whole year really kind of shifted his role for more of a under Cassidy. He was on that third line, but more of a play driver, a guy that you want to kind of exploit different mismatches uh, further down the lineup. This year he's more of a defensive center. And again, that's probably not the role that if you're a player with coil skill set, you're probably diving headfirst into of being the guy that makes life easier for guys like Bergeron or Krejci, but he's played an essential role in that pot. Um, you look at no six, a guy that I think people, didn't even want on the, the roster to start training camp uh, just because you were looking at guys like McLaughlin and Johnny Beecher and these younger players, but he's played a key role in terms of how good he's been at face-offs, D-zone draws, all those things. Those little things that maybe don't reflect on the highlight reel or stand out on the score sheet, but uh, plays a big role into what this team provides. Um, you look at Frederick, almost 20 goals this season. He's, he's made a, a major step forward as well. Just up and down this lineup, you have guys that can change the game in a hurry. Like it wouldn't surprise anyone if Garnet Hathaway has a a greasy goal in one of these tight games moving forward. He has a big hit that gets the you know people out of their seats at the garden. Like they just have so many impact forward. There's no placeholders. There's no guys that you'll see what they can bring. Like every single guy in this lineup, it feels like if this team has a long run, they're each going to have their own like moment, right? There, everyone's going to make the highlight reel in some regard, just in terms of how different everyone's skill set is, but how impactful they can be in any single game. Yeah, and I thought Coyle was really good in the 19 run when they went to the Cup, when they got him that year at the trading deadline. I just think he's he's tough, he's big, like he's got to be tough to deal with in these playoff series. I think he's actually built for the postseason. All right, so some thoughts going forward. Paul Maurice said that it was an A-plus performance for Alex Lyon, and it was a fantastic game one. Now, Marshawn, <laughs> that's one of the softest goals you can give up mm-hmm. on Marshawn. And then, of course, he had the other play where it's just sitting on his pad, the one that Jake DeBrus puts in. And look, I understand that he's like backing his guy and all that, but it feels like right now, and look, he said that he hasn't made his, he isn't get given a decision yet. Like it's way too early to do that. But I just look at it, this is a guy that's barely played in the NHL. You have Bobrovsky sitting on your bench, a two-time Vesna winner who had a bad year, a really bad year. I'm not dismissing that whatsoever, but he's also making $10 million against the salary cap. So after hearing this from Maurice today, do you think that means that Lions in the net tomorrow or do you think they will go back to Bobrovsky or is this a situation where it's, okay, Lion gets one more chance, he gets the start. If it gets ugly, they go to Bobrovsky or do they wait to game three? Like what's your prediction for this situation? Yeah, it's a tough call for the the Panthers, and it's, again, it shows you the con- you know contrasting a team like that that really is kind of stuck in this limbo as to what the best option is. And you've got the Bruins who have the Vesna front runner and a, a very very good backup goalie and Jeremy Swayman that could play in any single game. The Bruins probably feel very confident with him and Nett. So, if you ask me, after that game, I was I was going to say that there was not a chance Lyon was going to start Game Two. 
Marie's comments seem, uh, you know, contrasting that in terms of, you know, maybe they just want to roll with the guy that more or less carried them to the playoffs and having faith in a guy like that. Because I think once you make that switch, you, you have everyone kind of in that, that tough area with a guy like Lyon, who's not really proven in the NHL. You have him maybe doubting himself if you, if you pull him this early, but that being said, you can't have miscues like that against a team as good as the Bruins, right? Like that, Floater was playing a very, very good period, and all of a sudden you have Martian with that goal, and you know floodgates didn't open, but it's just a, a demoralizing sequence, and you can't have it against a team like the Bruins that pretty much have to play a pretty perfect game to beat them. So at this point, I feel like, as you said, Bobrovsky has not been good, but you look at his body of work and, and what he's done in the NHL, might as well give it a shot, right? Like, yeah, your team, your team's still going to be giving up a lot of high danger chances. That's just the way Florida plays, but. Might as well go with the guy, as you said, you invested tens of millions of dollars in as opposed to the the journeyman goalie who had a pretty shaky game in game one. All right. Probably the most I'm, I'm with you, by the way, I think that I would go to Bobrovsky to start game two. I, and I think that gets you in more trouble than starting the AHL. Right. I mean, I mean, yeah. starting the AHL gets you in a lot more trouble than starting a guy that's one two Vesna. So I, I understand why he started game one, but. I would be like if it was me, I would be putting Borowski in the net in game two and seeing how it goes. I mean, if nothing else, you can always go back to Lion, right? So right, exactly. you could if you wait too long, you're down three nothing. Well, then you get criticized for that decision as well. But oh, the most important question I wanted to ask you. What did you make of David Pasternak's haircut? Do you like it? You listen, I think yeah, it's a new season uh, in the playoffs. You gotta switch <laughs> things up. So I think for you know it's it goes back to the old adage of look good, feel good, right? So I'm sure he's got you know, seven or eight different uh, suits he hasn't broken out yet that I'm sure we're going to see in the playoffs. So as long as you have a guy like David Pasternak uh, feeling confident, looking good, I think it bodes well for the Bruins because I think you're going to see a lot of goals from him throughout this stretch for however long it goes. Yeah, I think this is going to be like his signature playoff run. He hasn't quite had that yet. He's dealt with a lot of injuries. And look, he's only 26. It's not like this yeah. guy is a 30-year-old player that's looking to have his first great postseason. So I think it's definitely coming for Pasternak. Oh, so before I let you go, any concerns going forward? I know we said like it wasn't a great game. Montgomery admitted it wasn't a great game for the Bruins, and they still end up winning. Any concerns going forward in the series, or do you feel pretty confident about where the Bruins are at? Yeah, I think injury aside, and obviously having Bergeron back and avoiding any more guys catching this bug is the biggest yeah. priority. But I think it just goes back to things that I think are easily correctable, right? Like it's better puck play, uh, smarter breakouts. It's not like the it's not like last year where you played the Hurricanes and. The Bruins, I think, were playing a couple of good games, but when Carolina is executing at their style of play, it's just miserable to play against. It's just, and I think any good team has issues with uh, Carolina when they're playing at their best. Florida, it's, you know, they'll forecheck hard, but if you are, you know, clean with the puck, make sound plays in transition, you're going to get the puck out of your own zone. And most likely, if you're having extended ozone looks, we're going to end up with pucks in the back of the net based on what that defense is that Florida rules out there. So, Again, I had my prediction of five games going into it. I'm probably sticking with it. I feel like, again, Florida does have a lot of firepower that you feel like puck looks eventually going to, you know, fall their way in one of these games. But I just think you look at over a best of seven series, the way that defense and those question marks in that for Florida, I just can't see them winning a couple of high scoring games not against a team like the Bruins that are that good in their own zone. Yeah. And like I said at the beginning, I thought last night was their game to win and not winning yeah. that game. That's going to come back to bite them. All right. That is Connor Ryan from the Globe. You read his stuff at Boston.com as well. Connor, thanks so much for taking the time and enjoy game two and enjoy sunny Florida. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. 
I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, great stuff there from Connor Ryan as we get you ready for Game 2, Bruins and Panthers, and... Should be an exciting game, too, In the Garden's going to be electric once again. I don't know if it'll be as electric as it was on Monday night after the marathon and the Red Sox playing. I mean, that's just a great day in Boston, so we'll see if it's as electric. I think it's going to be electric throughout the postseason. It's it's so awesome. we got both these teams making these postseason runs. The Bruins, of course, of the historic nature, but the Celtics trying to get over the hump, win that championship with Tatum and Jalen Brown, and we get to watch the Bruins as well. This is just a tremendous time of the year. It's going to be a great couple of months here. All right, time now for our greatest Boston bet of the week. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. And speaking of the Bruins, getting you ready for that game two matchup against the Panthers. Let's go with this. This is plus 275, a same game parlay for the Bees. The Bees on the puck line, minus one and a half. Pasta anytime goal score, and the Bees over three and a half goals. So the reason I go with the over three and a half goals, if they're covering the one and a half, they're probably scoring. They had three goals in that game, of course, on Monday night. I would expect more from the Bruins, especially if they get... Bergeron back in this game just to sort of lengthen out that lineup in terms of the lines. And Poss has just been on fire down the stretch of the season. When all these guys were out, Krejci missing time, Bergeron missing time, Pasternak has been incredible during that stretch. And that's one of the biggest differences. He's been unbelievable when these guys are out of the lineup. I think that does sort of display some sense of leadership as well. So that's my same game parlay for game two. Bruins and Panthers plus 275. Bees on the puck line, one and a half. Pasta anytime goal score, and the Bees over three and a half goals. All right, I did want to pass a note along to you guys. So you're familiar with Doug Kide, my buddy. We've had him on the pod a bunch to talk about the Patriots. He's really good at his job. I really enjoy having Doug on and really good at what he does. And he's even a better guy. I mean, outstanding guy. And he's going through something right now with his family. And if you're on Twitter, you already know about this, but, and I retweeted it and Unfortunately, his two-year-old daughter is dealing with a form of leukemia right now. She's already started chemo. Doug announced this on Twitter. But there is a GoFundMe page that's set up. And if you go on my Twitter account, I link to it there. And also, we're going to put it in the description of the podcast. So just pass it along the best to Doug and his family. And if you guys can contribute, go to the GoFundMe page. Certainly do that. But just keep Doug in your thoughts right now because clearly him and his family are going through a really difficult time. 
All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in at 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com as well. So Friday night, we're going to pod again. We're changing up the schedule a little bit because of the playoff situation. As you saw last week, we recorded on Saturday after game one for the Celtics. We're going to record Friday night after the B's and the C's both play. You have the B's in Florida and you have the C's in Atlanta. So we'll record after that game. We have a special guest coming up this week as well. So you want to stick around for that. And we'll continue to keep you updated on the pod schedule. But this week, plan for another pod dropping on Friday after the Bruins and the Celtics play Friday night. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.